from India's largest newsroom, I'm Arun George, and this is the Times of India podcast. As Pakistan's economic situation worsened, its Minister of Planning Ehsan Iqbal had an unusual plea to make to fellow citizens earlier this month. The statement made global headlines, but also put the spotlight on just how bad Pakistan's economic situation is. Amit Bhandari, who's a senior fellow at the think tank Gateway House, says tea is just a convenient example to address a much bigger problem. I think a bit of a mindset issue that uh, somewhere in our minds, some products are considered essential while others are seen as non-essential. So the thought process is that we can stop the import of non-essential products somehow to deal with the balance of payments crisis. I think evidently uh, tea because Pakistan imported about $500 million worth of tea last year. And uh, somehow it is felt that tea is not an essential commodity. So imports can be cut down and it can help save some forex for Pakistan. I mean, it won't help given the quantum, but uh, it's the thought process that we are discussing here, I think. Pakistan's foreign currency reserves have fallen to a level where the country can hope to import goods only for the next six weeks. Food prices are high. Pakistan was set to get aid from the International Monetary Fund in 2019, but that was suspended. That happened because the Imran Khan government sought to give people more subsidies when it was supposed to reduce them. Then in April, Imran Khan was replaced by a coalition government led by Shahbaz Sharif. Indrani Bagchi, who's CEO of the think tank Ananta Center, says the Pakistani Prime Minister inherited a pretty tough economy. Shahbaz Sharif came in under, let's say, democratically questionable circumstances. Imran Khan was done away with him, then, and Shahbaz came in, uh, obviously with the help of uh, the army and the the security agencies. He came in at a time when uh, Pakistan's economy has been uh, steadily uh, deteriorating and has been deteriorating for a while. To actually lay the blame only at Imran Khan's door would be unfair because every other prime minister or every other government that preceded Imran Khan uh, uh, dealt with Pakistan's economy in exactly the same way. This is not new. Shabazz Sharif is a businessman, so he has a um, he has an idea of how to uh, of what needs to be done. He is having to do this at a time when there is unprecedented global inflation. Uh, there is a food crisis. There is a uh, there are varying degrees of economic crises and everywhere in the world for varying for different reasons. He has a he has a persistent and an escalating security problem. Life with the Taliban uh, is not easy, as they are now beginning to find out. The Chinese are not as forthcoming as they were earlier. Neither are the Gulf monarchies. Uh, So he has a hard act. In today's episode, I'm speaking with Ananta Center's Indrani Bagchi and Amit Bhandari from Gateway House to decode the problems that Pakistan faces. We analyze what this means for India, the role China has played, and what to watch for in the coming days. To start with, Amit Bhandari explains just how bad the state of the Pakistan economy is. 
Pakistan's total exports of goods and services were about 28 billion dollars and their total imports during the same period were about 59 billion dollars so that gives a 30 billion dollar trade deficit for the first 9 months of the year there is one other big inflow element that pakistan has which is remittances from pakistani workers mostly in the gulf so this was also in the same period around 23 billion dollars which still leaves a 7 billion dollar hole uh, pakistani rupee was around 180 to a dollar it has gone to 210 so anything which is imported has become expensive uh, secondly there is inflation in terms of high food prices uh, and of course food price inflation is a global phenomena in pakistan i think the inflation consumer price inflation is definitely in double digits i think it is more than 15% and uh, i think mostly incomes have not changed so much uh, so there is obviously enormous hardship happening at the ground level amit bhandari says that pakistan has often turned to allies in the hope of getting financial bailouts and they've not been disappointed including this time one is that uh, one is you know one is their primary strategy for a very long time for pakistan has been to look for handouts and uh, pakistan has been trying to get more money out of china saudi arabia and the united arab emirates so saudi arabia for example has deposited 3 billion dollars with the state bank of pakistan which counts as pakistan's forex reserves but i don't think the money can be used similarly china's uh, uh, state administration of foreign exchange has parked i think 2.3 billion dollars also with pakistan but these were merely deposits this wasn't a grant or a aid which was given to pakistan uh, the other part is that um, pakistan has also had to go to imf and IMF this time given the past experience it has had with Pakistan has enforced a number of stringent conditions including elimination of subsidies on electricity on petrol products uh, larger tax base and an increase in taxation rate as well but ananta centers indrani bagchi points out that china despite its massive investments in pakistan isn't exactly in the pink of economic health itself and so it's a little less generous this time round Pakistan has always had some sort of success in getting both the gulf monarchies as well as china to bail them out and china has bailed them out in the past however this time you see china itself is in a bit of a an economic um, downturn china is also taking a more clinical view of pakistan's economic needs and so not being as uh forthcoming or as generous uh with their aid as before Pakistan's economic instability comes at a time when another indian neighbor sri lanka is also struggling to emerge from a crippling economic collapse Indrani says that Pakistan's economy has been unstable for years now and there are contradictory views on what that means for ties with india So Pakistan has been an unstable economy for a while. Uh Pakistan is only couple of steps ahead of Sri Lanka in the sense that um Pakistan has already been on uh several IMF programs. Many Indian strategists uh, believe that a stable Pakistan is good for India. But I think that notion has been Re- revised um that when pakistan feels 
it is stable or that it's doing well, it usually uses the good times to actually ramp up terror attacks in India. So uh, there will be many people who would tell you that it is better that Pakistan remains in a, in a state of instability for India's well-being. Um, it's a fairly cynical view, um, but I have heard that view among a number of people. Even as Pakistan draws closer to an agreement with the IMF to get a bailout, Indrani sees a difficult time ahead for the Shahbaz Sharif government. One thing she says might help is an easing of sanctions imposed by the Financial Action Task Force or FATF. These were imposed for Pakistan's links with terror groups. I can't even say that the IMF program is taking off because uh, the IMF has asked for certain targets to be fulfilled before it can even consider giving up the money. Will the Pakistan government be able to, to fulfill those targets? We don't know. Does Shabazz Sharif have the political space to take the tough decisions, economic decisions that he has to take? Uh, it, it's not easy in a country where you have extremist ideologies, dangerous levels of poverty, uh, coupled with um, you know terror groups, uh, coupled with uh, uh, a demanding uh, army and security services. Uh, how much space does he have actually to take those tough decisions? Um, so I'm not I'm not certain about that. Uh, that's something that we we watch out for. We also watch out for um, Pakistan using terror as leverage with the world. Uh, that's something else that we watch out for. The other thing which is going to affect Pakistan's uh, economic uh, future is uh, its, uh, its grey listing on the FATF. That makes it very difficult also for Pakistan to raise money um, in the international markets. It, also, it makes it difficult for in, international investors to invest in Pakistan. They may actually get off the grey list in the next review, which is scheduled for October, because they have they have fulfilled some of the uh, demands of the FATF, uh, but not all. And so we have to see whether the rest of the world keeps them on the gray list to keep the pressure on to act on terror financing, money laundering, etc. Or does it give them a breather by taking them off the list? for a while. Amit Bandari explains the difficulties the Pakistan government will face in trying to implement the conditions required to get financial aid from the IMF. Well, IMF package is not just a check. It actually comes with a host of conditions. These conditions typically involve that subsidies be removed on key items, tax base needs to be widened, government uh, expenditure needs to be cut down. So in a country like Pakistan, where uh, you know one arm of the state has actually captured the entire state, these kind of things are very difficult. So the tax base of Pakistan is extremely narrow. Uh, a very large number of people at the top end of the society simply do not pay taxes. The military controls a very large part of the economy, which is again untouchable. So what happens is that after a country enters an IMF package, it also gives other lenders confidence 
that chronic economic mismanagement is going to reduce and repayment ability is going to improve. Now, in case of Pakistan, in the past, they have started with IMF packages, but then they refused to follow through with the required conditions. And this happened under Imran Khan as well. When there were indications like he is likely to go, Imran Khan actually announced a host of subsidies on petroleum, electricity, and a few other areas. He was essentially trying to plant landmines for whoever came next. That whoever comes in next will have to remove these subsidies and will have to deal with the public anger that will come because the approach to IMF was, uh, they, that was unavoidable. So the next government has had to follow multiple conditions. They had to bring up food, uh, petroleum price by, I think, almost double uh, compared to what it was. Electricity prices have been raised sharply and taxes have also, new taxes have been announced. All of these conditions have been dictated by the IMF, which this time wants Pakistan to carry these out before assistance can be restored. There are quite a few similarities between Pakistan and Sri Lanka. High foreign remittances from its citizens abroad, low tax rates for citizens, and unsustainable subsidies. But another major factor is the amount of money that China has poured into these countries as part of its Belt and Road Initiative. Amit Bhandari, who recently wrote a column on Pakistan's indebtedness to China, explains how Pakistan received billions in investment at a very high economic cost. Infrastructure investments largely comes under this package called CPEC, China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, $60-70 billion worth of investments. Uh, and CPEC, of course, is one of the center points of the Belt and Road Initiative, which is also has significant investments in other countries, including Sri Lanka, of course, which is also facing a problem. Now, the thing is that swanky infrastructure looks very good. But, you know, what you really need to look for is that, is this needed? This has happened in case of Pakistan. The power generation capacity that has been built as a part of CPEC far exceeds what Pakistan can realistically use in the next several years. The second part is the cost. If World Bank or ADB lent to a government, they put in a host of conditions, making sure that there is corruption is eliminated if, or reduced, whether the project is needed, whether it will be viable. Uh, Chinese loans don't come with any of those conditions, which means that a lot of pressure to create a good project is gone. And plus, you have to hand it out without international competitive bidding to a Chinese contractor. So the cost on a per unit basis tends to be much higher. You add these things, overcapacity, padded costs, and high interest rates. I think the trend is clear that this is going to lead to trouble. It happened in Sri Lanka already. And Pakistan is also quite a bit way there. Now, the thing is, China is one of the few remaining uh, benefactors of Pakistan. So they can't outright go and say that these are bad projects. But if we look at Pakistan's uh, economic survey, the budget documents, they pretty much indicate that the indebtedness to China is one of the key problems they are facing economically. Amit Bandari explains how China's loans came at a higher cost than other international loans, but with fewer questions. This suits governments, he says, that don't want too much transparency. But with Pakistan's economic woes, Amit sees Chinese lenders having to relax their repayment requirements so that Pakistan can get a bailout package. This, in turn, could mean other nations will also demand similar concessions. He also explains whether Pakistan can still be steered away from economic collapse. Pakistan has borrowings from, let's say, World Bank. 
China and also from the G7 countries. The interest, uh, so roughly, I mean, 10 to 14 billion dollars, but the interest outgo on Chinese loans is much, much higher. Second is that Pakistan is also in a financial hole. At some point, lenders will have to possibly relax the conditions. Of the, one of the thing, issues will be that why should only one set of lenders take a haircut? So given China's large uh, lendings, loans to China and the uh, Pakistan and the impact they're having, other lenders are going to insist that China should also join whatever bailout or a rescue package is taken up and also takes a haircut at par with the other lenders. So unless that happens, I think it will be difficult for Pakistan to emerge from the problem where they are. And if China does that, then I think there will be demands from other borrowers also for similar relaxations. So in a sense, like a Sri Lanka could wake up and say that, look, you're giving Pakistan this discount, you give that to us as well. Sri Lanka, Laos, Kenya, so many other, Myanmar, so many other countries, because in many cases, uh, China did push through projects which were financially unviable at very high interest rates. And these projects have are unaffordable for the host economies. So uh, now, and, and, and it is unlikely that an IMF is going to provide support just so that the Chinese lenders can be paid back in full. So at some point, uh, the China loan problem, especially in the developing world, has to be uh, it has to be faced head on. Then does that hurt the expansion of the BRI project and something like the CPEC? Does that effectively then slow it down? These projects have slowed down in case of Pakistan. So they have completed about, I think, $35 billion worth of it. But I don't think too many new projects have been taken up in the last two or three years. This is a complicated issue. One part is that uh, a country like Pakistan or Sri Lanka does require infrastructure. And World Bank and ADB money comes in with a lot of conditions also, which many governments don't like. I mean, no, no, nobody likes transparency, let's face it. For a number of years, many observers had been warning about the Chinese debt trap. And I think after what has happened to Sri Lanka and what is happening in Pakistan, those warnings will have much more credibility. Uh, five years back, somebody could have said it is a case of sour grapes. If Chinese loans are bad, why doesn't the West come and fund it? So now that a number of economies have gone into a crisis because of these loans, I think more questions are going to be asked. And if the Western world is also able to come up with something of its own, at least some rival options also have to be built up. If there is no other choice, then people will go to the bad lender. A lot of comparisons now are there between Pakistan and Sri Lanka, especially given the situation that Sri Lanka is in. Hmm. Um, how close do you see Pakistan being to becoming a Sri Lanka? You're right that they are on a they are on the same trajectory, but there is a very big difference. The difference between Pakistan and Sri Lanka is that Sri Lanka chose not to take any corrective actions and default on its debt. So Pakistan is still a going concern and Sri Lanka is no longer a going concern. I, as long as you're a going concern, there is always a chance that you know you can change your trajectory, pull back from the brink. In case of Sri Lanka, I think it is possibly that uh, uh, probably the rulers and one family in particular believed that the strategic location of the island makes it too valuable to let it fail. And therefore, China will probably step in with more money. That didn't happen. And I think this is also an important lesson for Pakistan as well, that you cannot forever hope to milk your so-called strategic location. At some point in time, the world will refuse to pay a rent and there will be a reckoning. Uh, so, which is probably why Pakistan's establishment took corrective action when they still had some runway left. So, the devaluation of Pakistani rupee in the last uh, three months against the US dollar by about 10-12% 
and the removal of subsidies and new taxes that have been brought in they indicate that some course correction is already underway most likely pakistan will not end up the way sri lanka is simply because before things reach the point of no return they have started on corrective action today's episode was produced by jairaj singh sunai marathe and anuja singh for a daily spotlight on people ideas and stories that matter subscribe to us we're available on ty plus spotify apple google podcasts and all other platforms of your choice for any news tips email us at tuipodcast@timesinternet.in